People talk about the devil <clears throat> like he's some kind of cartoon. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, if I'm the devil, I'd want people to think I'm a cartoon. I don't want to think, have the world think that I really want to destroy them. It's, it's amazing how, um, you know, our world is so duped. We're seeing Satan worship on the rise. Uh, that's something that's happening exponentially right now. Uh, and, you know, Hollywood's, you know, pushing that in kind of a weird way. And, um, but, you know, one of the things that the devil, you know, does, and, and perhaps maybe one of the most dastardly deeds of the devil is um, not as much to make you do it, like, you know, like we talked about on Sunday, the devil made me do it, as Judas could almost say, because it was the devil that put it, put it within Judas to betray Jesus. But probably the most dastardly thing the devil's done, not making people do things, but it's what he was trying to thwart. It was what he was trying to stop. Uh, and, and I'm, uh, you know, there's a couple things that we forget about the devil. And I think sometimes we give the devil too much credit. We sort of act like the devil has um, omniscience, like God, you know, like he can think about everything all the time and knows all things. That's not true of the devil. He's, he's you know, he's a lot of things and he does have certain power. We don't want to dismiss that part necessarily, but, but omniscient he is not, nor is he omnipresent. Uh, the devil can't be more than one place at one time. Uh, you know, th there's kind of an interesting thing where we try to, I think, think God and the devil are opposites and hopefully God wins and we give the devil too much credit. But at the same time, it seems if you kind of read your Bible from cover to cover, the devil's been really trying to stop something and that is uh, salvation for the sins of the world, for, for humanity's salvation through Jesus Christ. And you know, the, the devil's trying to thwart that goes all the way to Genesis chapter three. If you recall, the proto-evangelium, as it's called, fancy word, uh, basically it's the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. It's actually, you know, um, you know, where Jesus is foretold by the Lord in his holy word that um, Jesus would actually go uh, and, you know, bruise, um, you know, crush the, the head of the serpent, but it would bruise the heel. What was that all about? Uh, there in Genesis chapter three. Let's, let's review that, Genesis 3.15 real quick. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, the serpent and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Uh, what's this all about? Well, this is the first mention of, and there's so much in this verse. We, we have implied here the, the virgin birth because a woman doesn't have seed, or sperm is the word there in the original. Um, so what's that all about? Why is he talking about the, um, you know, the seed of the woman? Well, that's because the Messiah that would crush the head of the serpent would be of the seed of woman in the sense that it'd be a virgin birth. Um, so really from this point forward, it seems that, that the, um, you know, the enemy, Satan, wants to sort of thwart this idea of a Messiah that would save not only the Jews, but the sins of the whole world. Um, and it's really that scarlet thread throughout the whole Bible. As we talked about last week, Jesus is in the volume of the book is written of him. But Satan seems to be wanting to cut the scarlet thread through the whole story. That's something you should know. Um, in fact, uh, the corruption of the seed of man there in Genesis five and six is part of that Satan wanting to sort of mess with the seed of man. Uh, part of the reason why I believe the whole flood happened in the first place, because it was Noah, his seed or his generations were not corrupted yet, uh, which is more than just he wasn't, a, he was just a nice guy. It's talking about his seed, his genetics. There's some interesting implications there, but all throughout, he, you know, it seems that Satan wants to sort of 
you know, thwart the work of God in salvation for humanity, trying to stop Jesus. Um, and maybe even this idea of Jesus coming as the Messiah. Remember how a lot of people thought Jesus was coming to be King of Kings, Lord of Lords? And they, they missed the Messiah because they had a preconceived idea. Could it be that Satan didn't really know the full story either? Um, maybe he didn't really realize what was happening, that Jesus was willingly, purposefully going to the cross. I wonder, this is something for you to think about, did Satan think, we're having a win here? We're gonna cut the Messiah short. Let's see him rule and reign as he's hanging from a cross. Um, you know who actually did a pretty good job um, with this idea of the story um, is C.S. Lewis in his allegory, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Chronicles of Narnia story. If you recall, Edmund, the son of Adam, as, as it was called, all these things are really kind of amazing. C.S. Lewis had a kind of that multi-layer thing going on in the Chronicles of Narnia, but Edmund sinned, uh, and uh, the, the wages of sin was death, as it turns out, in Narnia. Um, and what he had done uh, was uh, guilty of death. And, and so the white witch came and was gonna kill Edmund, the story goes. But the lion, the lion came and uh, talked about, you know, how there was part of the law or the magic that, you know, if the lion, if, if, if someone who came and, um, you know, sacrificed who is innocent on behalf of the, the one that was, you know, guilty of death, they could substitutionarily die and see the white witch was thrilled because she didn't care about Edmund. She wanted to kill the lion. Um, and so she gleefully with all of her, you know, demonic little friends, uh, kill the lion as the story goes there on the stone table. But as, as the lion is killed, um, the stone table cracks and the lion comes back to life because the white witch didn't know. She didn't know about the deeper magic still. Remember the story, you guys? Hopefully you guys have all read that story. If you haven't, it's worth a read. It's kind of fun. Read it to your kids. Um, but, um, but all that to say, uh, she, she didn't know, as, as C.S. Lewis puts it, the deeper magic still. That if an innocent person who had never sinned shed innocent blood on the behalf of a sinner, um, that per, the death would not have the grip and there would be life and resurrection. And it's a great picture, really, of what Jesus did. I wonder, I do wonder, did Satan think he was getting a victory as Jesus was being, you know, <clears throat> crucified on a cross? Um, <clears throat> and maybe thinking that, hey, he's not gonna be the, you know, the, the one who sits on the throne in Jerusalem, uh, but he miscalculated. Little did he know that Jesus going to the cross would be the very doom that Satan dreaded. Um, and that's kind of an important thing to sort of understand here uh, as we see the road to the cross and the temptations of Jesus. He's still facing temptations just like you and me face temptations, but without sin. And ultimately, Jesus will submit to his Father in heaven. Um, now, in, in our Sunday text, we were seeing the different mindset of the people. We saw Caiaphas with his mind already made up before he even tried Jesus. Peter, who couldn't make up his mind. Judas, his mind was made up by the devil. And we saw Mary of Bethany in chapter 26, who was the one with the renewed mind, the right mind, uh, worshiping at the feet of Jesus. Um, beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, um, all that to say, those that have been Christians, if you've been a Christian for a really long time, like me, I've been a Christian for, you know, 51 years now. Um, and uh, you can almost forget the power of everything I just said. 
Oh yeah, yeah, the cross of Jesus Christ, died on the cross, my sins, and you can almost, you know, you kind of forget, but I, I, I hope that the Lord can kind of peel back some of that, that uh, thickness in our brains and say, let's, let's resensitize to the radical thing we're about to read, where Jesus goes to the cross willingly to die on the cross for your sins, thereby being the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father, but through Jesus. Why? Because Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, is the one who died on the cross. So in some ways, I would just say we all need to wake up tonight, pay attention. Uh, everything's pointing to Jesus and the promise of salvation. And that's kind of where we pick it up here in Matthew chapter 27. Let's take a look, verse one. It says, when the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Now, uh, I don't wanna belabor this point too much, but um, one of the things I like to do is help sort out some of the confusion uh, that people have about, well, when did this happen? And how many trials were there? And why did Jesus have this trial, that trial, and the other trial? And, and, if, and, and it's really, it does one well to, to read a harmony of the gospels. Um, in fact, you can, you can buy some great work, study aids that help you sort of sync up the four gospels and how each story sort of interacts. And um, by the way, some of the enemies of the Bible will say the gospel's full of contradictions because one gospel writer says it this way and the other gospel writer puts it that way. And they sort of try to show these contradictions. Um, and I'll try to bring those up as we get to them because there are no contradictions in the Bible. There are different perspectives in the sense that, um, you know, Matthew was written from the perspective of Matthew. Uh, and, you know, and that's, and John was written from the perspective of John. And uh, maybe he heard, John heard things that Matthew didn't. Um, uh, it, it shouldn't bother us, um, but I believe all of it's inspired by the Holy Spirit and there's no contradiction, there's no problem. So when people come and say, well, this story about the tomb and who showed up at when and what time, uh, they like to bring up all these things. Um, there's good answers, just so you know, there's good answers. And if you do it, just even a little easy work, you can uh, align those stories and they're, they're, it's quite a beautiful story. Uh, to say the least. But one of the things um, that I wanted to sort of align is Jesus will go through a series of six different trials uh, before he's crucified on the cross. Three trials will be from the, at the hand of the Jews and three of the trials will be at the hand of the Romans. Uh, so that's kind of important for us to see. Uh, so far, we've, we're right now at the second uh, of six of the, uh, of the trials that we just read here in verse one. Uh, let's go over these just real quick so you can kind of have this in your mind as we go through it. The six trials of Jesus. First, the Jewish trials. Trial number one, we haven't even looked at it in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew doesn't mention trial number one, as it turns out. Um, trial number one is before Annas, the high priest. John chapter 18, verses 12 through 24 uh, tells us about that first Jewish trial. After, after Jesus was taken to the guard, from the Garden of Gethsemane where he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, uh, he goes down and the first thing he does is goes to Annas, the high priest. Caiaphas and Annas were both high priests in Jerusalem at the same time, uh, as it turns out. And I mentioned that before in our previous studies. Trial number two was before Caiaphas, the high priest. And that's what we read last week in Matthew 26, verses 57 through 68. So that's the second Jewish trial. Um, and then the, the trial that we just read now brings us to our third 
trial. This is the trial before the Sanhedrin, Matthew chapter 27, verse one, I should say. That's only verse one, not verse two. Uh, I need to fix that. <laughs> but, um, but all that to say, um, we, we see that right here and you say, well, Brett, this doesn't really sound like much of a trial, but it is and it's different. On um, uh, Matthew 26, Caiaphas, remember his trial was at nighttime and it was just a few thuggish type people that were a bunch of liars and they were doing it sort of as like, it was what we might call a kangaroo court, which is um, you know a, sort of like a lynch mob with a bunch of liars in it. That was the second trial. But now here in Matthew 27, verse one, it says, the morning was come, the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel, this is the trial, against Jesus to put him to death. Why, why is this repetitive? Well, this, this is actually more of an official trial than it was more than the one the night before with Caiaphas. But see, Caiaphas has already got his ammo because he's got a liar who said Jesus tore, wants to tear down the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, that was in chapter 26. And he also has Jesus saying, uh, I am the son of man who will be seated at the right hand of power. And so Caiaphas says, this is enough. We've got enough to crucify him. He's claiming to be God in the flesh and he's claiming to tear down the temple. We saw that Jesus never claimed to tear down the temple. He said, if you tear down this temple, speaking of his body, uh, then I will raise it up three days later. And that's what Jesus actually said. So there were liars. But um, so right here in verse one, we see the third of the Jewish trials. Now, as we get through this, we're gonna see uh, trial number four will actually be um, uh, before the, the Roman Pontius Pilate. We'll talk about him later. And there's two parts of Pontius Pilate's um, sort of trials, if you would. But that's in John chapter 18, verses 20, uh, 28 through 38. And then the, the, the fifth trial, or the second of the Roman trials, is before Herod Antipas, Luke chapter 23, verses 6 through 12. Um, there's a little bit of a hot potato here for these Romans. Nobody really wants to handle Jesus and the division that the Jews are uh, wrestling with. And I'll, I'll tell you one of the reasons why here in a, in a little bit, but um, it was something that nobody really wanted to deal with. It was sort of the hot potato. And the Romans are like, uh, Pontius, you take it. No, you take it, Herod Antipas. And then uh, it comes back to Pontius Pilate. And that's John chapter 18, verses 39 through 19, verse 16. Um, now, the, some of these are in more gospels than what I just listed there, but um, if you wanna have the main mention of each trial, the script, I've listed the scripture underneath where you have the most information uh, at each one. Uh, so there it is, the six trials of Jesus, three Jewish, three Roman, and that'll help us kind of sort out what we're doing here. Now, you might say, Brett, why were there so many trials? Uh, what's, what's the point? Why does, why does God, the Father, allow this to even happen? Why not just send Jesus to, to the cross and what have you? Um, well, three reasons. One, to show what Jesus went through for you, because each one of these trials will bring more shame and more evil you know, upon Jesus. This is all a 24-hour period where Jesus is gonna be treated horribly. To show, number one, what Jesus went through for you. Number two, to show how innocent Jesus was. Um, over and over, they're gonna be trying to find stuff against Jesus, but they really can't. And, and you, can, you get a sense that Caiaphas has sort of got his little things that he's accusing Jesus of, but everybody's going, uh, yeah, I don't think that's really a big deal. And you're making a big deal out of it. Um, there's courts today that do the same thing about certain events. 
uh, where they try to make a big deal and false witnesses and crazy stuff. It's kind of weird. Uh, you can see that in, in just evil humanity. That's part of our nature. The third reason why there's these six trials, each one of them will fulfill Bible prophecy somehow. Uh, you know, remember how Jesus would be led like a sheep to, you know, uh, to the slaughter, and he would not open his mouth against his accusers. Uh, these trials will be confirming that, as, as we saw with Caiaphas' trial uh, in chapter 26. So, um, so why so many trials to fulfill prophecy, to show the innocency of Jesus and also what Jesus went through for you? Now in verse two, it says, and when they had bound Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. So this is where, in my list that I just had up there, you see where Pontius is part of that, uh, that, that next uh, trial there in, in verse two. Um, so all that to say, uh, Paul, uh, by the way, uh, side note, um, Paul, uh, the apostle, gives us a little hint about something about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is a funny thing, because normally, the Pharisees and Sadducees were very much like the Republicans and the Democrats in Congress. Uh, how were they like that? They hated each other. Like, like, it's funny, when I was a kid, we used to watch at least Congress sort of get along. But if you're a young person, there used to be a day where they'd actually talk about stuff and we used to do stuff and we'd see even laws passed. It was, it was Congress actually did things uh, for you young people. There was actually a time where that happened. But um, now it's like, man, everybody's screaming at each other and nobody even shows up anymore to important meetings. If it's the other side who's meeting for a, their issue, nobody even shows up. Like it's, it's really quite interesting. But that's the way the Pharisees and the Sadducees were. They, they were part of the Sanhedrin and they hated one another. Um, but what's interesting, uh, one of the things that happens in human nature is... Um, Suddenly you see enemies come together when they have a common enemy. And both the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees hated the idea of Jesus. They felt threatened. And so suddenly they're all singing Kumbaya now. Uh, there in the Sanhedrin because Jesus is on trial. And this is kind of an interesting thing. Um, Paul used... Paul the Apostle used the division of the Pharisees and Sadducees for his own purpose. They were, do you, do you recall there um, in the book of Acts when Paul's standing before the Sanhedrin and they're, they're saying, you know, we're gonna, you're in big trouble. And, and Paul yells out, I am a Pharisee and I believe in the resurrection. Do you remember what happened after that? Everybody started screaming at each other because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. So Paul just took a little, you know, philosophical grenade. I'm a Pharisee and I believe in the resurrection. And then the Sanhedrin and the, and the you know, the, <laughs> the, uh, the, all the Pharisees and Sadducees started yelling at each other. And Paul got kind of like, whatever about Paul. He, he gets out. Um, it, it'd be like you going into Congress right now and say, you know, eight but two genders. <laughs> <laughs> if you said there's just two genders, male and female, uh, uh, if Congress was in there, you'd have a huge fight on your hands. And one side would say, no, there's infinite numbers of genders. And then there's another side saying, God created male and female, male and female. And then you could walk out unbeknownst to the people as Congress <laughs> because they'd be so busy yelling at each other about genders and stuff. Same thing. Uh, that's what Paul does. So the Sanhedrin was a divided court against Jesus, they were united, and that's really shocking. Suddenly they're, they're united uh, around Jesus. And uh, there's a lot of issues, I think, that are interesting um, where 
that's still true today. There can be people arguing issues, but Jesus, what you believe about Jesus, what you think about Jesus is the most important thing. And, um, and that's, that's you know, what we need to remember. Um, so, so the question is, why did the Sanhedrin have to bring the, uh, Jesus to the Romans here in verse two? Why did the Sanhedrin have to bring Jesus to the Romans? Well, um, this is something that I, I, I feel bad because I, I can't contain myself sometimes. I think one or two of the services this last week and I mentioned this, and then I thought, man, I really messed it up because most of the services I didn't bring it up. Um, but this is an important part of the story. Why did the Sanhedrin have to bring Jesus to the Romans? This is, there's an interesting story and it has to do um, with the prophecy of the scepter of power. Uh, this sounds like an Indiana Jones movie. Uh, Indiana Jones and the scepter of power. Um, but it's actually a Bible verse that's uh, kind of interesting. So what's this whole thing about the prophecy of the scepter of power? Well, it's in Genesis 49, 10. Um, remember when Jacob was you know, prophesying over his, his sons and the 12 tribes of Israel? And ultimately, it was kind of a, a radical thing as Jacob's on his deathbed, he's, he's pronouncing blessing or cursing on some of his sons. Um, but when he comes to Judah, um, which is interesting, um, Judah means praise, but Judah is the tribe which Jesus would be from, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Um, so when, he, when, when Jacob comes to Judah, he does this mysterious prophecy uh, about the scepter of power. It's in Genesis 49, 10, where it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come and unto him shall be the gathering of the people, or gathering of the people be. Now that sounds fairly cryptic, but here's the thing. The Jews uh, and the rabbis and all those people, they would teach for centuries, this was a messianic prophecy from Jacob, basically saying that the Messiah would be coming from the tribe of Judah, but they, would, they, they had some good news. Good news, the scepter of, uh, of power is the idea. Shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, which means nobody's gonna take away the power for the Jews to govern themselves until um, Shiloh, uh, which is peace, or the Messiah is another name, really a reference to the Messiah. The Jews knew this, um, and the Messiah would come. Uh, so there was a promise that before they would lose their power as Jews, uh, the, the Messiah would come. And so the Jews were waiting to uh, see the Messiah who would come and deliver them. Um, so you say, okay, big deal, whatever. But, but this is where it gets interesting. Um, you know, it was, um, it was actually, uh, you know, um, the power was taken away from the Jews by the Roman Empire. The Romans had been around Jerusalem for a long time. Um, in fact, it's interesting because how long did the, the Romans, uh, you know, uh, exist? Well, 666 years. That's an interesting number if you, you know, count the Byzantine Empire. Um, but, um, but all that to say, uh, uh, the, you know, they'd already been in Israel for a long, long time. But it wasn't until A.D. 12 that something happened in Jerusalem. And I'm not even sure the Romans knew what the big deal was because what they did is they, they ceased they took away the Jews' own sovereignty as, as um, a governing people of them, themselves. No longer could the Jews govern themselves. And, and the main issue there, believe it or not, was capital punishment. 
The Romans took away the Jews' power to uh, kill people for legal reasons, you know, for, uh, capital punishment. Um, and, and so what happened then is suddenly Jews were ripping their clothes and weeping in the streets of Jerusalem. Why? Because the scepter of power prophecy from Genesis 49 didn't come to pass. Their sovereignty to, to uh, enact laws and what have you was taken away before the Messiah came. And so they were so sad about this. But the, the, the part of the story that's so fun is you and I know they were actually wrong. The Messiah did come. It was that same year that Jesus at 12 years old would come into Jerusalem and confound the priests in the temple. The Messiah did come. And it was right before the scepter of power was taken. The Messiah was born. He was walking around before the scepter of power was taken away. And so it's really quite fascinating. Um, when the members of the Sanhedrin found themselves deprived of their right over life and death and its capital punishment, you know, they were, they were so sad. By the way, the Babylonian Talmud uh, records their sorrow in this. Chapter four, uh, folio 37 of the Babylonian Tal Talmud, they, uh, of the Jewish writings. Woe unto us, for the scepter has departed from Judah and the Messiah has not come. This is how they wrote it in their Talmud because of that. Little did they know the Messiah had come and was already there with them. Now, 30 years earlier, the Sanhedrin could have taken someone uh, that they wanted to kill and they could have killed them. They could have done it. Question, quiz time, how would the Sanhedrin would have killed, how would they have killed someone in their day? Yeah, the Jews, they had very strict laws. The rabbinic law limited cap capital punishment to four methods of execution uh, from the Levitical law. First, stoning. You could also burn someone, strangulation, and decapitation later was uh, added to their list of things you could do. Uh, not a way to get ahead, I guess. But, sorry. But, um, but that brings us to uh, this, kind of the second point. The first point, um, the prophecy of the scepter of power. Um, why, did the, why did the Jews have to give Jesus to the Romans? It's because they didn't have the power over capital punishment. Um, so the Romans had to be involved to get the A-OK -okay to kill Jesus. But the second reason the Jews had to give Jesus to the Romans is the prophecy of the curse of anyone that hangs on a tree. Um, you, you see uh, Deuteronomy 21, uh, there's, a, there's a prophecy. And again, the Jews knew this, um, this, this prophecy uh, or this, this law really. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23 says, his body shall not remain all night on, upon a tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day, for he that is hanged is accursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for inheritance. Jewish law said, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. Um, but the Jews could not hang someone on a tree. That was not a, an approved method of uh, capital punishment. Um, to fulfill prophecy, so, so the first one, the scepter of power, was, was, that was a fulfillment of prophecy. But also, this was a prophecy of the Old Testament that Jesus, their Messiah, would be, become a curse. He who knew no sin, what? Became sin on our behalf. And he who uh, was, uh, was perfect ended up taking the curse of sin upon himself. Cursed is him, Jesus, who hung on a tree. 
Uh, what a powerful picture that is. And so, so this is kind of fascinating to me. Uh, another prophecy of the Bible uh, about how Jesus would be executed in a very non-Jewish fashion. Only God could have ordained all these events. And that's why the Romans had to be involved with the trials. Crucifixion was the prophesied method of the Messiah's death. By the way, crucifixion wouldn't be invented until around 300, to, people debate, 300 to 440 B.C., um, and uh, the people who used it a lot before the Romans were the Persians, today's Iranians, they used crucifixion. But the Romans are famous for using it by the, by the hundreds of thousands of crucifixions. And they perfected the art form of death, the Romans did, in figuring out ways to make people be on a crucifix as long as possible and still stay alive for a most excruciating death. Um, so, you know, the, the crucifixion is kind of an interesting study in and of itself, used by the Persians, uh, the Phoenicians, uh, even the Macedonians, they all used crucifixion, but the Romans were the ones who really perfected this. Um, but other prophecies that point to the method of crucifixion, I'm gonna go through rapid fire here. You guys ready? You can just jot down the address if you want. But Exodus chapter 12, uh, verse 46. Um, one of the things, Jesus is the Passover lamb, but of the Passover lamb, in one house, the lamb shall be eaten, not carry forth out of the flesh abroad, out of the house, neither shall you break a bone thereof. If you know and have studied crucifixion, um, the bones of a crucifixion would purposefully not be broken. That would keep them alive longer. When they wanted the, the person to die on a cross uh, and, and finish it, you guys know the story, don't you? Remember when it, it was like Passover, they're like, Man, we don't wanna leave the bodies. So they came and said, let's kill these guys off. So they went to the first thief and broke his legs because that would end his life. He could no longer stand on his legs and give himself artificial respiration by stretching out, <gasps> gasping for air, and he, he would suffocate to death. As soon as you break the legs, they knew they would kill the, the victim hanging on the cross. That's why they did that. But when they came to Jesus, why did they not break his legs, anybody? He was already dead. To confirm that, they stuck a spear in his side. They didn't break his legs, but they stuck a spear in his side and out came blood and water. Other prophecies being fulfilled there. But Jesus' bones were never broken. That's an interesting thing. You know, he was beaten beyond recognition, wounded for our transgressions, but not a bone of his body was broken. And man, we could just go on and on talking about why the bone's not broken. Does anybody know where does the blood, where's the blood created in the body? Yeah, in the bones, in the bones, the bone marrow. And it's interesting because what a perfect thing. His, you know, the cup of mercy never runs out. His mercy endures forever. There's some interesting pictures about the bones not being broken, the blood of Jesus, but I'm getting way bogged down. I said I was gonna go fast through these scriptures. <laughs> Numbers chapter nine, uh, verse 12. They shall leave none of it unto the morning, nor break any bone of it. According to the ordinance of the Passover, they shall keep it. Uh, Psalm 34, 20. He, he keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. This is a messianic psalm about Jesus. Uh, so man, talk not only you know, about the bones, but what about being pierced with nails, hands and feet? Uh, man, there's some specific prophecies. Zechariah 12, 10. I will pour upon the house of David, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Psalm 22 Another messianic psalm, verses 16 through 18. Four dogs have compassed me. The assembly of wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and feet. I may tell 
all my bones. Uh, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast uh, lots upon my vesture. This is a very, isn't this amazing how specific this prophecy of Jesus is? Um, you know, this is written by the psalmist, you know, a thousand years, you know, before Jesus even was hung on a cross. But this almost tells the story to perfection that they didn't break his bones, they pierced his hands and feet, and they cast lots for his garments. Like, uh, it's amazing how perfectly the, the work of the cross was so exactingly fulfilled. God, this, this tells us God knows exactly what he was doing. Uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't just arbitrarily just letting things happen. Um, and like I've been you know, hammering this point, Jesus wasn't resisting or wondering what's gonna happen next. Uh, Jesus was allowing all of these things to happen and God is orchestrating everything. Uh, you know, there's even things that kind of show even more of God saying, oh yeah, you guys wanna do it this way? I'm gonna do it that way. Do you remember in chapter 26, what did the Sanhedrin reason to themselves about the Passover? Does anybody remember? They said, it's the Passover, so what? We don't wanna kill him on the Passover. That's what they said in chapter 26. Isn't it interesting that they didn't get their way on that? Jesus dies on the Passover. Why did the Sanhedrin not get their way about not killing Jesus on the Passover? You might say, well, things just didn't work out. You know, no, um, Jesus dying on the Passover is an amazing prophecy fulfilled from the Old Testament. So the Sanhedrin didn't wanna kill him on the Passover, but he dies on the Passover because Paul the Apostle said, Jesus Christ is our Passover. And he dies on that very day. It's, it's just amazing. You see the Lord orchestrating all the pieces to make it all work out perfectly. I, I just love that. I love the Bible for that. Um, uh, so uh, all that to say, um, so back to our text. What verse are we on? Verse three. Oh boy, here we go. <laughs> verse three. Uh, it says, then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See thou to that, <laughs> these guys. Um, so um, in verses three and four, some words are missed in the English, uh, you know, uh, King James version, you know, particularly, but the word, for example, verse three, condemned, um, and, and that's an important word in this thing. Um, the word condemn, we've been talking about conviction versus condemnation. And, and Judas, one thing we need to note here is he was condemned um, when he saw that he was condemned. Now, the question is, was he talking about himself or was he talking about Jesus? Well, um, you know, the idea is uh, the word for condemnation there, condemned, is sort of in trouble, but without any hope. That's the, the word here. So if Judas is talking about Jesus here, he's saying when he saw that Jesus had no more hope, uh, which we know Jesus had more than hope, didn't he? But that's Judas's perspective. When he saw that Jesus was condemned, he's like, oh no, what have I done? That's kind of the idea. And then you say, but Brett, it says here that he repented himself. The word repented, I think, is perhaps an unfortunate word because the Greek word is um, Metamelomai, fancy Greek word that, that actually means um, kind of an interesting, regret is a better translation. Is there a difference between repentance and regret? I remember when Bill Clinton 
got in front of the, the nation after saying, I know, you know, denied this and said that depends on what the definition of is, is. If you guys were old enough to remember that, but I remember when he was finally admitting what had happened and so he got in front of the nation while they oh, this is where he's gonna say sorry for lying to the country. And, he, and the word he used wasn't, you know, um, you know, well, the word he used was regret. And a lot of people were like, uh, wait a minute, that's not the word we were looking for. Of course you regret it, uh, you know, but are you repentant? Um, if you guys remember that, it was kind of a big deal for you youngsters that weren't alive during that time. But, um, but, uh, but uh, there's a difference. I hope you're not one who just regrets your sin. I hope you're one who repents from your sin. By the way, note the words in this little passage, I have sinned, verse four. Years ago, I, I, I need to do this again somewhere. Maybe, maybe one of these ironworks I'll do with this, but a really cool study. Uh, I, I, I was once you know, doing a word study through the Bible and I, I looked at all the places in the Bible where some dude says, I have sinned. And it's really a fascinating study because people can say I have sinned, but they can mean any number of things. Um, and it's actually kind of a fun multi-pointed uh, study. Uh, Saul Remember when Saul realized his robe had been cut by David and David could have killed him? And, and, um, and Saul says, oh, David, I have sinned. Was that repentance there? Well, if you know the story, it wasn't. So sometimes you can say, I have sinned, and there's no repentance. David and Bathsheba, um, David said, I have sinned. When he got called out by Nathan the prophet, I have sinned this day. Um, was he repentant? Well, the answer is yes, and we know that because the Lord says, and Nathan even says, and the Lord forgives you of your sin. Um, it didn't mean David would still not have repercussions for his sin, but in fact, God did forgive him for his sins. Um, Job says, I have sinned. There's, there's interesting studies about the, those who say, I have sinned, but Judas is one of those guys that's an interesting study. He said, I have sinned, but he doesn't repent in the truest sense, even though your translation, some of the time he repented himself. Um, that, that, there's kind of an interesting thing in the King James when it says that he repented himself. Um, it, it's almost like he did to himself, but he didn't repent before God. We showed you on Sunday the difference between you know Peter and Judas. Peter denied Jesus three times. Judas, you know, betrayed Jesus one time, but Peter repented of his sin. And he ends up being used by the Lord mightily. Uh, Judas just regrets his sin, but doesn't really repent before God. And he's gonna end up in a bad situation. Um, and so Judas really couldn't stand really what he did. I think he, he gets to that point where his sin, he realizes the horror of what he had done. Have you ever been to that place where you've committed sin when you realize, what have I done? And you, could, you can really freak yourself out if you're not careful for your sins because our sins do stink and they're ugly and they're horrible. But that's where you gotta lay those sins at the foot of the cross where somebody can do something about them. But if you just hang on to those sins yourself, that's what he does. He repented himself. He hung on to it himself and he tried to run from it. You know, it reminds of, you know, Hebrews eleven twenty five, where Moses, you know, it says, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God, rather to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. There is pleasure in sin for a season. I wonder if Judas was excited when he got that first 30 pieces of silver from the Sanhedrin. Oh man, I'm loaded. I betrayed Jesus, whatever. But then once he did it, then he sees Jesus now condemned. And he says, oh no, what have I done? And he saw 
He probably saw that 30 pieces of silver for what it was worth. Nothing, nothing. That's the problem. We think there's value in things and we, we think it's awesome. You know, we got this great 30 pieces of silver, but it's just, it's just nothing but trouble. And then you realize it wasn't even worth it. So much so, we're gonna see how, how he's gonna pay the price. So many people don't measure the, or count the cost of sin. You know, um, I think that's why I think sexual sin is talked about so much in the Bible. I've noticed that people don't really count the cost. There's all kinds of hurt that comes from sexual immorality. There's the physical hurt, STDs, and your body doesn't, is not made to have multiple partners. The Bible tells us that. Monogamy uh, doesn't mean one at a time for those of you that maybe were raised in public schools. Um, monogamy uh, is what the Bible prescribes. One man, one woman for all their lives. And, and, and anything outside of that, you end up physically hurting yourself. There's emotional hurt and reputational hurt. There's a relationship hurt long-term. Nobody wants to talk about that stuff, but sexual sin, there's, there's pleasure in sin for a season. But man, like the psalmist said, the end there of his death and the, the way is you know, ugly and sad. Uh, it's the old statement, sin is not bad because it's forbidden, it's forbidden because it's bad. It messes you up, uh, no matter how sweet it seems from the beginning. Learn from Judas here. Don't even get close to sin. Well, uh, verse five, and so what did he do with those 30 pieces? Verse five, he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. In Acts chapter one, there's more about this, and it gets pretty gross. Um, some people try to argue, remember I told you about the people who like to try to find our, uh, contradictions in the Bible? Well, how did he die? Did he hang himself, or did his guts get ripped out and he splatter all over the ground? Which one? And the answer is yes. Um, Acts chapter one says that, uh, you know, in fact, it's Acts 1.18 that says, now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity and following headlong, he burst asunder in the midst and all of his bowels gushed out. You didn't color that picture in Sunday school, at least I hope you didn't, because um, that's a pretty gross picture. Um, in fact, uh, I don't know if I should go into the details, uh, but, um, but Judas is the, is the picture in the Bible of the son of perdition, which is the son of waste. Remember we talked about that. He called Mary a waste for worshiping Jesus, he really was a waste because he was a smart guy who chose to betray Jesus and, and he ends up with his guts splattered out all over the ground. How did that happen? Well, scholars believe, do you remember the old Western movies uh, when they would have the, they build the gallows, you know, and the guy's sitting in jail and, and then, you know, you know, wah, 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 you know, whatever. And, and then the, the gallows are being made. Remember how they always test the gallows and, and uh, I used to think that was just to kind of add to the drama, you know, the sack of, of grain, a grain or whatever, and they'd drop it and they'd test it over and over. And you'd, you'd, the guy in the prison would be hearing it. Well, the reason they tested the gallows so much is they wanted it to drop a certain velocity, but they didn't want it to drop so much because they literally had a problem with decapitation. If you were hanging a person, if he dropped too far, it would pop his head off. Brett, why are you telling us this? <laughs> you guys look concerned. Um, uh, scholars believe that's what happened to Judas, that he probably hung himself on a very high tree when he 
dropped, it probably took his head off and he hit the ground where his gut splattered on the ground. Like, like this, the reason I tell you that, you say, but don't tell me. No, this is what the Bible tells us about. The, the, anything that's really, really gross in the Bible, you'll notice there's always a link to horrific sin. Sin leads to just sick, ugly, horrible stuff. And those pictures are there for a reason in the Bible. And that's probably what uh, happened to, uh, uh, to Judas. By the way, there's an interesting rule of the Jews. Deuteronomy 19 um, actually tells us about some of the laws of the Jews, if you remember. If a false witness rise up against a man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days, and the judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, if the witness be a false witness and hath testified falsely against his brother, then shall you do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother, so thou shalt put evil away from you. Judas thought to have Jesus betrayed and crucified. But isn't it interesting that the, it's like this, this is the Lord saying, um, you know, this, this is what's gonna happen to Judas as the false witness. Um, was he trying to undo maybe his wrongs knowing um, that he was trying to betray Jesus and maybe this is a way in his brain to undo the wrong by hanging himself? Question, if Judas wanted to undo the wrong that he had done, what should he have done? Hanged himself or What? Repent before God. Is it possible for J Judas Iscariot to have been saved? Um, the answer is, well, yes, he could be saved if he would have repented because there's only one unpardonable sin. There's only one sin and it doesn't say that the unpardonable sin is the betrayal of Jesus Christ. It is the denying and rejecting of Jesus Christ. But had Judas repented of his sin and fallen down I wonder, you know, it's hard with Judas because he's given this name that no, almost nobody else in the Bible, except for the Antichrist, gets the name son of perdition, which means basically you're going to hell. If there's, <clears throat> if there's somebody you know who's gonna be in hell in the Bible, Judas Iscariot is one of them because he never really repented before God. <clears throat> well, quickly, verse six. Wow. Just moseying here. It says, and the chief priest, verse six, took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. Isn't it weird? The sanctimonious attitude these guys had of, we need to very much be much, very much keepers of the law. It's not lawful for us to use this money because it's blood money. Um, they could care less about the fact they're about to kill God but they're all worried about their little religious practice of blood money and what it's used for. And man, that's the hypocrisy of humanity. We worry about the small things when we really should be focused on what really matters. Um, and I think there's a lot of people today that are missing the whole thing and they're all caught up in the little microcosm of their own little world, but they're missing that, what have you done with Jesus Christ? Do you believe? Have you repented of your sins? Are you going to heaven or hell? Um, there's so many people that have missed out on the truth. <clears throat> so now they're conscious of doing the right thing according to the law. What about thou shalt not kill? Um, this is an example of what Jesus talked about, the speck that is in the eye versus the beam that is in their own eye. The beam that was in the eye of the Sanhedrin was murder. The speck that they were worried about here was the, you know, using the money for something else. Ridiculous. 
Well, verse seven, and they took counsel and brought with them the potters, bought with them the, the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy, Jeremiah, that's the Greek form of Jeremiah, Jeremy the prophet saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver and the price of him that was valued, <clears throat> whom they of the children of Israel did value and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. Wow, there's so much here in this. Uh, first, um, this is an amazing thing uh, that was said here. This is a prophecy being fulfilled. Well, the big question is, before we talk about the actual prophecy, is whose prophecy was it? Well, anybody want to take a guess who said this about the, that they took the 30 pieces of silver and the prize of him that was valued? Where did that come from? Did it come from Jeremiah? Now, if you're at Southern Oregon University, where I went to school, this is one of their gleeful, they see contradiction in the Bible. Jeremiah didn't say this. Zechariah the prophet said it. <laughs> we got you. Might as well throw your Bibles away and you know, pack it up because the Bible's full of contradictions. This is one of those things where people, these guys are just dupes and they don't really know the way the Bible works. And I want to say, um, this is important. So let's, but I, I, I can't take too much time with this, but let's try to do this quickly. Zechariah, this, this actually comes from Zechariah 11, verses 12 through 13. And I said unto them, if you think good, give me my price. And if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said unto me, cast it unto the potter, a goodly price that I was uh, prized at them, at of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Uh, kind of a strange prophecy, isn't it? That Zechariah gets about the 30 pieces of silver. We got all the elements in this, in this though. Uh, exact price, 30 pieces of silver, exact location, the temple. The ultimate recipient is the potter's field. The nature of the transaction is blood money. It's all right here in this verse. So why then does Matthew say the prophet Jeremiah? Well, this is, this is something that um, some people will say is a contradiction, but it's not. Um, it's, it's actually the continuation of the prophecy that Jeremiah the prophet started with. <clears throat> Jeremiah, um, the major prophet, gave a major scripture and jot this down in your notes, Jeremiah chapter 18 and 19. Do you guys remember Jeremiah 18? Classic scripture in Jeremiah. It's the parable or the story of the potter, the potter's house. The Lord told Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house. And, and so Jeremiah went down to the potter's house. He says, what do you see? Well, I see the potter with a wheel and he's spinning away and he's, he's pressing down on the clay. And there's this whole, you know, this whole section about the potter. <clears throat> and then the clay, you know, uh, is marred in the hand of the potter. So the potter squishes the clay down again and makes whatever kind of vessel he wants. And, and um, then he says, Jeremiah, the Lord says to Jeremiah, see this potter, what this potter's done? Even as the potter has power over the clay, don't I have power over the clay, Israel, to make whatever kind of vessel I want? And Jeremiah learns the lesson of the parable of the potter. Um, and you say, well, Brett, then why? So, so Jeremiah brought up the potter thing, but, but why does he bring up um, Jeremiah instead of Zechariah? This is an interesting thing. In ancient writings, <clears throat> generally speaking, but also in biblical writing, the prophet that first brings up the topic uh, or the illustration, that prophecy tends to get, go, all the credit goes to that prophet. 
Um, it's, it's actually, um, if you talk to the theologians, do you guys remember what synecdoche is? There's different kinds of synecdoche. Um, but synecdoche, um, a macrocosm synecdoche, is where a larger entity is used to refer to the smaller part within it. So like a synecdoche, for example, that we might say today, the White House said, like you hear that all the time, the White House said, the earth is going to be destroyed by climate change in four years now or whatever we're at right now. Um, and, you, and you realize, well, that wasn't really the White House talking. Was the White House saying climate change? Is that what's happening? The, the actual house itself? No. Um, it was the president within, the smaller little dude inside the White House is saying uh, climate change. That's synecdoche, especially as, as it relates to um, that which is a larger entity used to refer to the smaller part within it. Same thing is used here, same uh, technique is used. Matthew's saying, even as the prophet Jeremiah said, or you might even say, as the prophet Jeremiah started the whole idiom or analogy of the, the God being the potter and Israel being the clay, and then ultimately the Lord can do whatever he wants with any bit of clay, and then Zechariah's prophecy about the potter's field, the money and the blood money, that was a continuation of this idea of the idiom of the potter and the potter's field and the, and the blood money and all that. So it's okay, you can calm down. Jeremiah started the discussion. Zechariah the prophet finishes the discussion. That's why Jeremiah gets the credit. That's, that, that is the te technique of ancient writers and what have you. We still do that today in a lot of things. Um, you know, somebody may have come up with something and they get the credit for it, but there's a lot of things that came after to support that. Does that make sense? I hope you guys see that because this is one of those areas people like to say, see, the Bible is wrong. And I like to say, nope, uh, you're always on good ground. When somebody says the Bible's wrong, you can say, well, uh, I doubt that. Even if you don't know the answer, uh, it's worthwhile to do the digging and, and look and see. And the answers are always pretty simple, actually. Well, back to our text. Um, okay, oh, I didn't really tell you the meaning that's so cool about this though. Um, I just went over the history here a little bit. Um, really quickly, um, what's this picture of the potter that Jeremiah started? Well, it, it, in Romans, do you remember, you know, Paul the Apostle spoke to the Romans when they were talking about, you know, things like, um, you know, predestination, divine, you know, election, uh, you know, where God says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And people say, well, who is God to love, you know, Jacob and hate Esau? And Paul says, don't you remember what Jeremiah, the potter, you know, told about the potter? The potter can make it a vessel to honor or a vessel to dishonor. God can do whatever he wants in, in making a pot. And, and see, here's the problem with the pottery analogy. Some of you are like, yeah, Brad, I, I feel that. The Lord made some people amazing vessels. And some of us are not so incredible. Um, do you ever wonder what kind of vessel the Lord's going to make of you or has he already made it? Um, what's, what, what's, what kind of vessels are? Well, there's the fine wine glasses. Some of you are fine wine glasses. Probably not. Uh, some of you are just root beer mugs. Some of you, some of you might be toilets. There's a vessel. Brett, that's horrible. <laughs> well, some of you have a story that's kind of like a toilet. I mean, if you know, it's like uh, you've, you've been through a lot and you realize, man, most of my life I was a you know, horrible sinner doing horrible things. 
And, and, and maybe, I remember one of the most vile vessels when I was in high school. I went to a goat roper school out in the middle of nowhere and a bunch of cowboys and they all had spittoons up on their dashboard of their truck. And my buddies, you know, after football practice, we'd go and I'd get in their cars and realize, man, I don't want to sit up there. That's gross. Because they'd spit in their spittoon, but they'd miss, you know. And, and so their tobacco juice was kind of all over the front by their, it was really gross. Um, and I thought, you know, maybe the Lord made me a spittoon. That's a pretty vile vessel. But worse still, some of you have had lives where not only were you the spittoon, but you've been broken. You see, that's the problem. Some of you were wine glasses that ended up broken and messed up. Question, what did they do in Bible times with broken pieces of pottery? Because it was actually, it wasn't recyclable, if you know what I mean. Once a broken piece of pottery was made, um, it was just a shard that was dangerous and a waste. So what did they do? They'd throw it in a place called the potter's field. The potter's field. That's where they'd throw broken pieces of pottery. Um, and it was good for nothing. The, the potter's field was good for nothing, except for as it goes. This is where it gets really interesting. The potter's field was good for nothing because there were shards of sharp pottery. You couldn't grow stuff in it. You couldn't till it up. You couldn't, it was just a waste of ground. So guess what they did with the potter's field? The potter's field became the idiom for where they would bury the strangers that had, like homeless people that died on the street. They would bury strangers in the potter's field. It became a, pot, a graveyard of nobody. You say, Brett, that's depressing. But here's the good news. Guess what, what redeemed the potter's field? Does anybody know the, the, in, in the typology of the Bible, does anybody remember the, the, the substance of redemption? Silver, somebody got it. Silver, in the Old Testament, as we read about everything that's silver, it's always linked to the idea of redemption. And here's this money that was paid for the betrayal of Jesus. And instead of the high priest taking it in, they put it out into the pot. They bought the potter's field where you could bury broken pieces of pot, pottery, broken lives, ruined lives, buried in the potter's field. But it was, was what? Redeemed by the silver, by what Jesus did on the cross. See, a lot of us in this room, you, you've lived some hard lives and you've been broken and messed up and lived some you know, sinful lifestyles. You think, man, but good news. The power of the cross is mighty to save, even to the broken pottery. Maybe you're a crackpot. Maybe you've been broken and beaten in your life. You, you even have scars to prove some of your, your tough things you've been through. But guess what? The love of Jesus is, reaches far enough to even reach the potter's field. There's, in fact, there's no one that cannot be redeemed from the love of Christ. I think there's an interesting picture here of the potter's field being purchased by the redeeming work of Christ, even as the betrayal price. That's all part of this prophecy that was fulfilled. And I think it's a beautiful piece of, of the Bible. It makes me glad for all of us have been messed up, broken and beat up, but the Lord redeems us, amen? amen. Well, moving forward uh, here still, um, <laughs> whoops. Um, uh, let's see, where are we? Oh yes. Um, one of the things we're gonna see here is verse 11. It goes on, it says, and Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him saying, art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, thou sayest. And when he was accused of the chief priests and the elders, he answering nothing, remember Isaiah 53, uh, we, we saw this on Sunday, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
uh, is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep to the shares, dumb, so he opened not his mouth. That's a fulfillment of this, what we just read there, when he answered nothing. Verse 13, and it says, um, then said Pilate unto him, hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he answered him to never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. Pontius Pilate's like, what? You're not gonna like defend yourself. Don't you hear what they're accusing you of? Um, this is pretty shocking. Now, um, one of the things I love about this is, did you know up until recent years, um, they, the critics of the Bible, um, this is one of my favorite ones, by the way, because uh, there's a lot of these stories, but they, the, the critics of the Bible said, um, one of the things the Bible gets so wrong is that there was ever a guy named Pontius Pilate governing in Judea. And for the longest time, they said this. And they only had, the only evidence they had of a Pontius Pilate outside of the Bible was actually, you hear me refer to the works of Josephus? And, um, and what's interesting, Josephus was first century historian, Jewish guy, but he was not a Christian, uh, but he worked for the Jews writing history. And so there's the Antiquity of the Jews. There's four volumes of Josephus' works. Now, I'm not recommending that for reading because it's not armchair reading. Has anybody tried to read the works of Josephus? Yeah, it's, it's not easy. Um, I like to reference the works of Josephus and, and uh, refer to the ones that are kind of more interesting. But, um, but Josephus, as shockingly, they used to think he was, you know, 100 years ago, they thought, well, he didn't know what he was talking about. He writes history and it's, most of it's false. But it was interesting because he would confirm things in the Bible, even though they said he was false and they said the Bible's false. Well, as it turns out, Josephus is gaining credibility as we speak because a lot of things he said are archeologically coming to pass. That's pretty cool for Josephus. But the Bible's been doing that for centuries. People say, well, this never happened. You know, that never existed or this, uh, and there's story after story. But one of the big ones was they say Pontius Pilate never existed. So what Josephus talks about him, he's a wacko, didn't know what he was talking about. Um, and the Bible also, uh, you know, is, is stealing the story about this Pontius Pilate guy. Well, as it turns out, Pontius Pilate, he, he actually did exist. Who was Pontius Pilate? Um, well, uh, there's, there's actually, now we know a lot more. And, and, and now we can take the writings of Josephus and understand he knew what he was talking about. And there's actually a lot of stuff he wrote about Pontius Pilate. Um, let me show you something about Pontius Pilate. This is where I love it. Because when they said there's no archeological evidence that Pontius Pilate ever existed. Well, um, back in uh, the 60s, they were doing some amazing archeological digs. One of the first places I bring you when we go to Israel is Caesarea. And this is where the, the, the palace right on the Mediterranean of the Romans, they, they were right here. Um, and this is where Herod uh, Agrippa was. Uh, and and there's, they, there's a huge theater and there's also this hippodrome. Do you guys know what a hippodrome is? Uh, hippo meaning horse, not hippopotamus. Uh, hippodrome was Ben-Hur. Remember the chariot race scene in Ben-Hur? There was an exact hippodrome there and also this huge theater. This is Athe Creekers. We're doing a little Bible study right there in Caesarea, looking over the Mediterranean Sea. This is the theater where Paul actually gave a defense. Uh, it's an amazing place to go and the, 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 the digs have been amazing. But this stone right here is a replica. Uh, they made a cast of the stone that they found as one of the steps when they were digging archeologically, there was an old stone and it had inscribed on it um, Pontius Pilate's name. 
And it was actually a stone that was part of another building that they tore down and used the stone as a foundation piece in another building. And then when they got this, they pulled, this is the real stone. Micah and I got some video footage of it. And the, the real stone is in the Israel Museum. The, the, they put the, the, the fake one out there at Caesarea Philippi, um, or Caesarea Maritima, I should say. But this is the stone they found that the first time they, they actually found uh, the name of Pontius Pilate, uh, which proved the Bible right, more importantly, the Bible, but also Josephus was proven right. And even there's a date on here uh, in Latin and what have you. Now, since then, in 2018, maybe you saw this, they found a 2000 year old ring uh, that had the name Pontius Pilate on it. Um, and some people believe this ring may have belonged to Pontius Pilate himself, but even if it didn't, it was somebody that had a ring with Pontius Pilate's insignia on it. That's the Times of Israel, 2018. You can look that up. But um, the point that I make here is Pontius Pilate did exist. The Bible's always right. Archaeologically, uh, things are always proving the Bible to be sound. But there's also some things you should know about Pontius Pilate. As Jesus is standing before him, before him here in Matthew 27, Pontius Pilate finds himself in a pickle. What's the pickle Pontius Pilate's in? Well, he's already got three strikes or goofs that he made, nobody from Rome wanted to be stationed down in Judea where the Jews were. But Pontius Pilate, when he first showed up, he'd heard about these rascally Jews that were constantly causing trouble. So when he first marched into Jerusalem, he thought, I'm gonna show them that I'm the boss. And so he marched to Jerusalem and he, and he, and he came with all of his you know, fancy Roman uh, you know, horses and all their standards, you know, those standards that the Romans would carry with flags and insignias and even carvings on the tops of their standards and what have you. Well, he marches in and he goes right up to the Temple Mount on, in Jerusalem and with his horses and his standards. And guess what's at the top of the Roman standards? Golden eagles. What does a Jew look like look at a golden eagle as? Anybody? An idol. Thou shalt, this is a Jewish thing, uh, thou shalt not make unto thee what? Any graven image. And the Jews took that seriously. Uh, and so, the, so to the Jews, the Romans were bringing their idols on their temple mount. Do you understand how big of a deal that is to the Jews? Well, how big of a deal was it? Well, the, the Jews freak out. And there's like a, a huge riot and, and, and Pilate's like, what have I done? What's going on? And he's like, the Jews are really ticked. And he says, well, let's kill some Jews um, to make sure they know that I'm the boss. Uh, whatever, we'll, we'll, we'll shut these Jews' mouths. Uh, so, and you know, what, you know what happened? This is a true story. The, the old Jews there on the Temple Mount, they all lined up in front of Pontius Pilate and his big entourage. And they laid their necks on the ground and said, kill us, chop off our heads, please. Um, because we will not live. And, and, and every one of us you kill, there'll be 10,000 more here to, to be a problem for you, Pilate. And Pontius realized he had opened a bit of a can of worms there. And so he actually backed off and cowered you know, his way back into you know, Pilate's uh, quarters there in Jerusalem. Goof number two, he felt a little bad about what happened on the Temple Mount. So to be friendly to the Jews, he thought he'd build uh, somewhat of a high-tech water system uh, aqueduct, as the Romans were famous for, and get water uh, system that would bring water to Jerusalem. How would he pay for it? Well, the Jews didn't know how he was planning on paying for it until they actually realized he was, he, he was taking the temple treasury money to build the water system. Strike number two, the Jews were furious 
for him stealing the temple treasury money. Goof number three, Pontius Pilate ordered new armor for his soldiers as they were marching around Jerusalem all the time. And they put the head of the emperor, uh, Tiberius Caesar, um, and the Jews didn't like that. Again, you got a picture of a man walking around Jerusalem in gold or brass or whatever, and the Jews freaked out. And, and another uprising. Well, as it turns out, as Josephus writes about this first century historian, he said, at this point, a uh, 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 you know, telegram comes from Rome saying to uh, Pontius Pilate, you, this is your final warning. One more rebellion and you are finished. That was the message from Rome. And now Jesus shows up. Uh, this, is, this, this is what Pilate's having to deal with. He's got this issue that the Jews are furious and there's a bit of an uprising. And what he decides and what he does, how's he gonna deal with this? The answer, we'll find out next week <laughs> as we continue our study through Matthew. Lord, we, we are thankful as we consider all these things. Lord, the the potter's field part of the story, what a redeeming work you've done to, to um, purchase back what other people look at as waste and trash and useless. Lord, you're able to redeem and save even to the uttermost. Lord, I thank you that you take broken pieces of people and you put them back together. Lord, um, we're able to put our trust in you as one who's able to save because of your willingness to go to the cross. And as we study this story, I pray that our hearts would just once again be so inclined to be worshipful. Lord, remembering all that you did, all that you endured for us. You endured the cross, despised the shame, and uh, Lord, you took that for our penalty, for our sin. So Lord, I pray that we'd be meditating on your word, on these passages we looked at tonight. And now, Lord, as we go our way, I pray your blessing upon these, your people, that we would just uh, do well. As we walk the rest of this week, may our light so shine before all men, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.